and push mine back. All righty. All righty. Okay, welcome everyone back to the Handmaid's Podcast. This is recap number two, and we're going to be covering episode four, five, and six. I'm here with Kay Megan Washington and Abigail Johnson. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. How are you? And just remind all the good people, introduce yourself and what you do and all that good stuff, Kay. Sure. Um, uh, my name is Kay Megan Washington. I... Uh, run a, a mediation program for the state of Maryland um, with the Maryland Department of Agriculture. Um, my running joke is that I keep farmers from punching each other. <laughs> and um, when I'm not doing that, uh, I'm an actor, um, both stage, film, TV, voiceover. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And Abigail. All right, so I'm Abigail. I went to the New York Film Academy. I'm a professional actress. Then I got my bachelor's in psychology and behavioral analysis. Um, so I'm a bit of a behaviorist by nature. And then my master's that I'm completing right now is public administration, so policy. So it's all over the place, but it's good for the show. It's and not all over the, the place. It matches in, a, in, it a, in an odd way. It matches. <laughs> Alrighty, well, I'm so happy to have you guys here as our co-hosts for season two, and uh, we're going to just jump right into episode four, which is Namesake Nolite Tebastardis Carbor and Durham, which is kind of a <laughs> great moniker for uh, the series and this work. It's kind of a well-known phrase if you follow The Handmaid's Tale um, pretty religiously. And uh, we'll get to the significance that's of that. Because that's not ironic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so this episode opens, and it's uh, June, Luke, and their daughter Hannah. They're sort of at the State Fair Carnival, this sort of like dream-ish sequence. Mm -hmm. And it's leading us into um, what happened into the episode before, where Serena Joy, the commander's wife, banished her to her room because she was really upset that uh, Offred was not pregnant. So Alfred has just been confined in her room for 13 days, so she gets to eat and all that, but she's not allowed outside to do the shopping and all her normal duties that she gets to do. So she's kind of uh, going a little crazy. What is that called? Cabin fever? Cabin fever. Yeah, mm -hmm. there you go. Stir crazy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she says, if I let myself fall in too far, I won't ever get out. So this is a real big psychological game that the Serena Joy is definitely playing. And uh, this leads us to the engraving inside the closet, which is engraved Nolite, Tebastardis, Carbor, and Durham, uh, which we come to find out later is called Don't, in, translated roughly to Don't Let the Bastards Grind You Down. Mm. And she doesn't know what it means in, at this moment, but it sort of gives her comfort because it's something outside of herself, outside of her life. She's there's someone some else went through some shit that she mm -hmm. went through too, and absolutely. they were in there carving the wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And uh, so she talks about how it gives her some comfort, and uh, it relates back to a scene um, in the Red Center. So this is pre when she is at uh, the Waterford's house, where they are sort of being trained and indoctrined by the aunts. And so Moira and June are having a secret conversation in the bathroom, and Moira is, like, carving Aunt Lydia sucks on the wall, <laughs> which uh, I love. I had that as, like, my background somewhere. <laughs> um, and they mention, you know, if you're caught writing, they'll cut off a hand. So just reminding us sort of some of the rules of this world, which we spend a lot of time in episode one through three establishing, you know, no reading and writing for women, you know, definitely no free thought, <laughs> you know, no freedom. So um, 
we go back to what we call present day uh, to make things simple. And the commander's talking about how an aunt escaped from a red center and crossed the border into Canada and gave an interview to the Toronto Star, which is interesting because this is where we get a peek into sort of the outside world outside of Gilead. Mm -hmm. We've sort of established what's sort of happening, the rules of the society. Yeah, but we had no idea that there was an outside world until this moment. Right. Correct, yeah. Which, uh, it is a deviation from the books. Um, so they incorporate a lot about the interaction with other nations and outside worlds into this show, which is super interesting. And uh, Well, it makes sense, yeah. because unless this revolution took place worldwide, at all at the same time, right. it, there would have to be an outside world. Exactly. And it's, um, you know, people would think that that's weird, but when you're in it, I'm sure it's really strange, but if you think about, you know, certain nations in the Middle East and Southeast Asia and uh, South America, even to this day, there'll be a coup or sort of um, a military, not necessarily military takeover but just sort of but a change can of, be on any level right like a changing of the guard in just terms of political party majorities things like that even in the states we go democratic republic democratic mm -hmm. republic exactly <laughs> mm -hmm. very tumultuous every four to eight years yeah that we have so we get a little glimpse of that and serena tries to give advice but gets shut down by commander waterford so we're getting a little bit more of their relationship there um, and then Rita walks into the room to give uh, Offred her breakfast and sees her kind of on the floor and freaks out. And uh, June sort of manipulates Rita to get her a doctor's appointment. So, mm -hmm. so June's starting to get a little braver in mm -hmm. terms of trying to control the situation around her instead of trying to do, like just letting everything happen. Right. Um, and Serena makes her take the car instead of walking, <laughs> which is what she really what Offred really wanted. So Serena's still truly trying to maintain tight control there. And we go back to the Red Center, a scene I'm training for the ceremony, where the handmaids finally find out what it is, the actual heck, that they are doing. And watching how, <laughs> when they're first initially being introduced to it all, how they all just went against it, how they all fought back, how they all hated it, and were talking mad shit about it all. Mm -hmm. And Aunt... Lydia was the one, or was it Aunt Lydia or mm -hmm. another aunt? I don't know. But whoever the aunt was immediately started cracking the whip on all of them. And that was the moment that you see that, like, they're being forced into this. Yeah. Yeah. There was no out. They had no choice, even if they tried. Mm -hmm. And they were broken. They yeah. were broken down to conform any which way they were told. Right. I think by this point, especially we see with Janine, just like the brutality and the torture that they go through, this that, that there is this understanding that like, okay, they've been building up to this. Mm -hmm. So the, by this point, there isn't really super much that these handmaids can do mentally or physically, or you know, they're surrounded by people with really powerful tools to to keep them down. So well, it's like lobsters. Yeah. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> Well, you know, you no, you're right. And you put the lobster in the pot. You don't drop a lobster into a boiling pot of water. Mm -hmm. You put them in there, and it's nice, and you know, okay, this is cool, and they swim around, and then you slowly turn the water up on mm -hmm. them. I mean, same thing with the frog. What's that experiment where you put the frog in a beaker filled with water, and you slowly make it hotter and hotter and hotter? The mm -hmm. frog will acclimate to it and not realize it's boiling to death. Ah, oh, right. frogs do. Because I have heard the lobster mm -hmm. thing, so, Yeah. Uh, this is uh, where they quote in 
length the uh, passage from where this entire concept is really born from, the handmaid's concept, which is the scripture of Rachel, Jacob, and Bila. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not well versed in uh, Bible study. In, in Bible study, so I'm not exactly sure. I will Google. I will Google it. I promise. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> where this is in the Bible, but it's a story of Rachel and Jacob. They're married. They're married for a very long time, and they have mm-hmm. born. Rachel's born. Jacob, no children, mm-hmm. and Rachel. Uh, wants a child and so she says go unto my um, uh, servant Bila and she will be your handmaid so that this term is in the Bible this is where the source material comes from for this whole concept that Margaret Atwood has built this um, world upon and greater complication in the story in the Bible Mm -hmm. Um, Rachel is the second wife. The first wife is her older sister, Leah, and Leah has lots of kids. Ah, that's right. (laughs) I do vaguely remember some of Um, And so there's the whole, I am looking over here, and this person is fertile and has all of these children by you, so Mm -hmm. clearly it's not you, Right. and then I have none. Right. So it was like her great. Mm-hmm. A lot of tension, which there. was going on in the in the environment in um, in Gilead as well. That's correct. Yeah, you get that tension definitely. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like a pre-written word, like if this happens again, here's your outline on what you can do. <laughs> That's basically how they're taking it. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're definitely good at, and a lot of theocracies are good at taking passages and sort of using them to enforce. Um, way of law. want to do anyway. Right. No matter the context. I mean, right. And, you know, the whole argument with. Uh, gun control nowadays you know we can take that whole amendment apart and put it back together again in many different contexts mm-hmm. and so it's it's a similar vein to how you know theocracies definitely use a piece of scripture as a source of material for enforcing their way of thought and their way of laws they see fit but the way that they make it all so that it all happens the same day every month for everyone that's totally their own concept but mm-hmm. what i don't understand is how can you pick a certain day every single day or every single month same day that everyone follows how do you know that everyone's fertile at that exact moment like are you giving them like estrogen pills at a certain point or like i don't know hormonally controlling that because having everyone have sex once a month on the exact same day every single month to just i don't know that it's on the same day i thought it was i got Hmm. the impression it was no it was once a month it, it is once a month but it's once your month not once everybody's month so I guess I didn't get that clarification. Um, yeah. I guess that they make it, I think they make no. it a little clearer in the book, so that they mm. are they they monitor them. Oh, um, that's weird. I missed you know, that memo. And, <laughs> that's weird. Um, so they know. Oh, it's like one of those apps. <laughs> Control um, my cycle. <laughs> like I said, they they make it more more clear. In the, although I suppose with the technology, they could certainly control that's, it and have. Yeah. Everybody on the same Their cycle. Ovulation kind of deal. Yeah. Just sort of the technological know, sync up. It's yeah. one or the other, and I want clarification as to which. Yeah. Yours makes complete sense. If that's the case, mm-hmm. then I get it. Yeah. But if it's sure. everyone, I for some reason my interpretation of what I witnessed in all of season one was they all have sex on the same day as each other every month. I could be that's wrong. Weird. Yeah. No, I mean you're totally you're totally right because they don't really go into that much detail about it. But that does segue us into the doctor's office where mm-hmm. the doctor's office looks, you know, pretty standard, you know, standard, pretty, Clean. uh, 
uh, sterile. And uh, this doctor always gets me whenever I watch this scene. It's weird, right? His bedside manner is so casual. Yeah, and he's (laughs) such a nice human. He's so nice. And, like, to a fault because I think he He recognizes what's going on and he empathizes. Yeah, he has so much compassion. um, And he calls, like, and he's honest. He, He was like, I don't know, Waterfall might be sterile. And she was like... We're not supposed to use that word anymore. He's like, but I'm medical. I don't care. Exactly. <laughs> there's only in in their uh, indoctrination. There's only women who are fruitful and only women who that are barren. And he offers to help, quote unquote, by. So this is a yeah, practice. That's where it gets creepy. See, I did Super not creeps. see him as being particularly but, nice. I saw him <laughs> as sort of grooming her. Well, no. So I thought it was. I thought it was a solid offer for that. Con- for that situation and scenario in that world i think it's a solid offer it's still creepy okay but (laughs) but i think it only would have actually met that creepy level if she had said no and he had continued and been like well it's happening anyways because i don't want you know he made a justification like i don't want you to get in trouble or die because you can't have a kid blah 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 like because he very well he could have justified that he could have just forced her also oh absolutely that's where i think it gets creepy i'm not even questioning that i i think it's creepy in terms of the offer yeah, because it's not a free offer per yeah, it se. Was. It's mm. she had the right to say no. She said no, and he was like, "Okay." But I think he gets out of it is sex. I think that's what you're maybe getting. No, I mean, like, what I'm what I'm saying is how how freely are you offering? How freely are you agreeing to do something if you know that you could conceivably die? Um, if yeah. if you don't produce and somebody is saying well you know i could have i could have sex with you and help you out here it, it, that's just creepy it just doesn't feel like that's a free choice totally on her part. totally fair. it's a it's a now i agree that she could say no um and she did and she did um and it was respected right <laughs> that that doesn't make it less creepy to my mind. But, okay. um, and he pointed out to her, you know, that other people are doing it and mm-hmm. that Janine's kid might have been. Oh, um, yeah. right, right. Yeah. This leads us so. to, so Offred's like sort of having a meltdown on the car because it's, it's sort of like this was supposed to be her idea for some sort of reprieve. And instead she gets, you know, very weird bedside manner, casual doctor who offers to have sex with her to try and impregnate her so she won't go to the colonies and die so you know it was a very complicated outing for her not i think i mean it was very complicated but i'm i don't know man i think it was just a it's a it's an orwellian timeline and i think there's very little that would surprise me at this point true i think in any instances where there are characters that seem to have more wherewithal and compassion for the situation of handmaids and just sort of everybody else around them, I think, is refreshing. Right. Because every, I feel like a majority of people are really just, like, on one single train of thought. <laughs> Absolutely. And so whenever there's sort of a break from that, I do, I, I have a it, lot of compassion for yeah, that. Yeah, it doctor. had, it took me aside for a moment. Mm-hmm. I was surprised by the reaction. But, you know, if, <laughs> if this podcast takes off, I'm going to be tagged for being, like, anti-feminist <laughs> after everything I said. No. <laughs> no. Hey, everybody has their own opinion. <laughs> Um, so Offred actually has an interesting turn. I think after all of that, she realizes that, you know, she just needs to get out of her room. She just needs to get out of the house. And so she apologizes to Miss Waterford, really prostrates herself mm-hmm. to her, begs her 
to let her go outside again. And Waterford is like, mm-mm, I don't think so. And so she's a little dejected. And then we go back in time uh, to Moira and June's, the beginning of their escape that they've been plotting. And so they lure Aunt Elizabeth, another one of the aunts, um, into the bathroom by saying, oh, the toilet's overflowing. And they mm-hmm. legit kidnap her. They mm-hmm. take her down into sort of this boiler room slash basement. They steal her clothes. And they just, like, walk right out of the Red Center, which I realized, like, halfway through watching all these scenes was, like, in a high school. You know, they just mm-hmm. repurposed this high school. There's, I think like, I missed lockers, that. Um, the gymnasium and Not all that. kids to fill it up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. They needed those facilities. And uh, they walk right out. And uh, there is that sort of moment where it's, like, there's armed guards everywhere. And Moira yeah. just has the balls to be, like, let me out of here. And they're, like... <laughs> Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I'm just like, yes, it's working. Um, and so so the aunts sort of have a little bit of an upper hand in terms of hierarchy there. It might look like that way. Um, and then back in present day, we go back to the ceremony, and the commander is, like, in the room, and there's supposed to be an order that they go into the room for ceremony ritual night. So it's, like, the handmaid, then the servants, then Serena, the wife, and then the commander is locked. Last, and he has to knock and be invited into the space by the wife. Right. And so the commander's there, and he's, like, chit-chatting up uh, Alfred, and he's not supposed to do that. He invites her for Scrabble again. So Fred is having, like, a hard time, like, not having sort of a casual relationship with June. Well, I mean, he even tells her. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, I can't just yeah, be a machine. Like, right. I need some kind of contact in order to get off, essentially, is what he was telling her. Mm. And in the next scene, we see Serena um, wants to be intimate with Fred. This is sort of like kind of a heartbreaking where right. like I start to really feel for her. That was it's, the first time I had a human moment for her. Yeah, for real. It was, it was really tough to watch where she just wants to be intimate with him. And there's definitely something broken there. And so they cancel the ceremony um, and all that. Then um, we'll get back to that, connecting to that. But we go back to back in time to the escape. Mm-hmm. And so they're walking around. They're trying to find this train station. And they're trying to figure out where they are. There's like an aunt gardening and some old park. Um, there's no old street signs. They're all new street signs. There are tanks everywhere. There mm-hmm. are armed guards everywhere, guardians. And they're just trying to figure out where they are. Um, very militant. And you, you get to a glimpse of sort of like their first glimpse of the outside brutality of what's happening out there. There's um, people hanging on what looks like a... Yeah. a stadium like a mega version of the wall that's in their own little town mm-hmm. um there's like just dead bodies being carted around on these little carts just casually nonchalant like a normal fucking tuesday yeah <laughs> just and no papers, papers and books being burned which is pretty typical of you know regimes oh, yeah. that they definitely Burn into it you want to control the knowledge control, control the, the message yeah exactly so then they make it to the train station. And so this is the moment where, like, oh, they're both going to escape. But they yeah. somehow get into a situation where uh, June stays behind a little bit so that Amora can go and figure out which track goes to Boston. Right. Mm-hmm. And she gets um, stopped by a guardian, and well, they're asking the her aunt. questions. Yeah, and so right. she doesn't know the right things to say. And so the train pulls up. And so they have this moment where it's like, what do we do? And June, like lets her go and lets her know that it's okay just like go this is it's important for at least one of us to get out rather than none of us 
And so Moira gets on the train, and the doors close, and off she goes on the train in her aunt outfit, and um, uh, June gets dragged back to the Red Center, which we and continue we that. And we don't know what happens. It's a yeah. cliffhanger. Well, we <laughs> find out later. That. Well, yeah. yes, but not now. No, yeah. you're right. Um, At that so, moment, I was like, hell yeah, she's going to Canada. But it didn't happen. No, it didn't happen. <laughs> um, so then this, sh- I, they sort of, you know, engineer this editing to be like, she's thinking about that time. And she's just like, you know, Moira didn't go through all that shit for me to just give up on the floor of this closet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just as so she motivates herself with sort of that thought to get out of her despair. She walks into the commander's office for Scrabble and um, Fred's talking about, oh, there's I was out of town for a trade delegation in Mexico, which we'll get to in, in episode six. Um, she sees a book of Latin on the shelf, and it reminds her of the carving that's in the closet of her room, the Nolite Teba Stardust Carver in Durham. And mm-hmm. she realizes that there's a connection here. And she starts to connect the dots about the person that was here before, and she starts really asking the hard questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we find out that uh, the other hand made... Um, the one who killed herself. The one who killed herself, hung herself. Mm-hmm. And so, so there's a lot of questions, but there's mm-hmm. definitely a lot of implied that she was also in this room. Fred had contact with her. There was sort of a relationship happening there as well. And on some level, the wife let it happen the first go around. She, yeah, she did find out. We do in the books, like, she does find out. Like, she did let on that, like, she did find out the first time. Um, and then when she finds out the second time, she's pissed. Yeah, she's mega pissed. Um and uh, back at the Red Center, we sort of finish out, uh, continue the storyline of when she gets dragged back after her attempted escape and she gets uh, tortured um, with her feet. It's really, oof, yeah. really brutal. Um, and back in the study, bounce back again to, to finish out here in the study with the commander and Alfred really um, manipulates him into getting out of her room, to getting her way. And Fred wants her life, she says, to be bearable because I think he there is some guilt there that what happened to the other handmaid he feels was definitely somewhere in his realm or like his fault. So there's a lot to unpack there and still a lot of little fine details that aren't really said explicitly, but you can imply a lot of right. things happen between them that he, you know, is trying to either recreate or trying to make right or trying to make himself comfortable with the fact uh, that... Ah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, trying to make himself comfortable with what ended up happening, which is definitely, he feels his fault. I mean, he yeah, wants, but... I, he wants her to make him feel better about ritually raping her every yeah. month. I mean, it's like, well, you But know. not only that, he genuinely wants a connection because getting off, having an orgasm isn't always an easy thing if there isn't an, an emotional connection. Some people are different, but mm-hmm. for him specifically... He's been right. doing fine with it until he starts calling her down. Not necessarily. He says that he's come. Has he actually... We don't actually know. The only person who would know, theoretically, is the handmaid. Yeah. There's definitely a lot there And with she's Fred. not going to say, hey, homeboy, <laughs> you didn't finish. <laughs> like, that's not happening. And uh, we finish out this episode, this really sweet scene that I think wraps everything up for this episode where, you know, June's been tortured. She, like, didn't go to breakfast because she's just, you know, obviously exhausted and can't walk. And the handmaids walk by and they gave her, like, bits of their breakfast that they Mm -hmm. had. And it's just such this sort of little show of, like, sisterhood sisterhood and compassion. 
and support. And so I think the, the, the culmination of this episode really becomes, you know, after all of the shit that everyone's been through, that we are really establishing that there is this connection between all of them and that there's someone looking out for each other in some way. Even the old handmaid that, you know, killed herself, she left a bit of herself behind and that little bit that she carved in that closet helped June. And so it's sort of this, like, effect of like everyone like doing little things that they can to to make it bearable to like make it through yeah because they're all going through the same thing they all know they're being raped they all know they're being tortured they all know they're being held captive against their will like what else do you do yeah i think one of the it relates back to um in the birthday episode when um janine gives birth and they sort of encircle her we Mm -hmm. sort of get a sense of that so i think it's a continuation of that and 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 you know, in a very specific way, just these how um, things you can't see, things that aren't obvious um, sort of carry you on and carry you through. And just the thought of Moira out there alive, you know, hopefully after all of that keeps her going. Um, so I think this episode, really, the theme is, is about survival mm-hmm. and um, connectedness. Um, our next episode we're going to go through um, really quickly is episode five. It's called Faithful. Also directed, episode four was directed by uh, Mark Mike Barker. He mm-hmm. also directed episode five. Um, so we open it with Scrabble, and they talk about how they flirt, and he gives mm-hmm. her a magazine. Um, and uh, she goes, oh, that look on your face is thanks enough. So he's really enjoying his possession of, like, right. power and, you know, the gratuitousness of that of right but he also likes the fact that you know she's not stupid that she has intelligence that she wants to engage in something that's pop culture that she you know there there's little bits and pieces that are beyond just pure control i mean obviously it's a huge part i'm not denying this but there's other levels to it yeah and i think this whole this whole episode the theme of it is really about relationships and like romantic relationships versus lust versus faithfulness and all of that sort of stuff because we really get into Luke and June's relationship and how they sort of first met and it was by chance they're like swiping through Tinder so they updated the storyline a bit to you know fit today's Mm -hmm. um, culture Um, and they sort of have this like little chemistry this little flirting thing going on even though he's married Um, and then Mrs. the next scene Mrs. Waterford and June um, are in the garden and Mrs. Waterford says that you know her time there is running out i think it's a year they have they do a year that they have at each post in to get pregnant um otherwise they move on and i think i think the magic number is three after i think three posts you're shipped off the colonies you're not fertile Mm -hmm. you can't uh, conceive a child after three years so Miss Waterford sets up Offered Talk with about Nick. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of pressure. Offered with Nick. And so there's already something happening there with Nick and Offered. There's that there is chemistry there. Right, but their so, first time was so beyond awkward. Yeah. It's we'll definitely get to that in this episode, their first meeting, and she's like, Well, we're gonna just do it today then. Strike while the iron has hot. And she's <laughs> like, Okay, Miss Waterford, whatever. Can't say no to you. And you get sort of the sense <clears throat> Mrs. Waterford's aim is like she really wants to have a baby. She's not fulfilled in her personal life. She's not fulfilled in her marriage. So she really is looking for something to this. focus on. Exactly. Um, we get to the grocery store and Emily is back. Alexis Bledel's character, the mm-hmm. former of Glenn, who is now of Stephen, um, says she's not a part of May Day anymore because she's too dangerous after being caught. Um, and the new of Glenn um, does not like that they're associating 
um, mm-hmm. and sort of gives us this perspective. What I, what I love about this show, um, first of all, so the new of Glenn, she says, you know, oh, you know, you, you know, you shopped up, you know, you had a Nordstrom credit card and you went to yoga class. You know what I did? You know, I got, you know, screwed behind the dumpster to get enough money for some dope and, you know, happy meal. Like, um, you know, she, so she was a drug addict. She was on the outs on the fringes of society. And this new regime has like regulated her life in a way that she is like in total support of it. She's like, I have a bed to sleep in every night. My family is nice to me. You know, mm-hmm. they're nice to me. So all things considered, you know, of what she is given up for what she has gained to her is worth it. And she doesn't want anything to jeopardize that position. And- so actually really glad that they showed something like that right. i don't know if it's in the books but i really appreciate that they showed that in the movie in, in the tv show it's not thank you um because you know we always look at these orwellian futures and these end of times predictions and how bleak and awful all the outcomes are and how these, and absolute like yeah there is mm-hmm. this how one there's no good option within here and she gives us you know actually yeah from my perspective this is heaven I do appreciate that about the show. They do this over and over and over again, where no situation is black and white and no situation right. is absolute one way or the other, um, unless it's like my 100% hatred of red. <laughs> I mean, that's... that's Whereas personally. I'm not there with you, and I like that this show can give us these debates. Yeah. That we right. see it differently on all these different characters and scenarios. Well, yeah. I mean, it makes sense that the book would be different because... It was written the, a long time ago, wasn't it? Well, that's not the only reason. Okay. The primary reason is that it's written as a diary, as like diary entries. Oh. So it's only from Alfred's perspective. perspective. She only comes in contact with certain people. She only knows certain things about how things are going. You can't do that on a television show. You have to open it up. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so... In order to open it up, you have to bring other people into it, which means that you've got a more populated, um, more complex world. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of which, I think, you know, getting to Luke, the nature of even Luke and June's relationship, because this is in the book, how mm-hmm. um, they started as an affair and eventually, you know, he left his wife and um, they got married and they had a child and they had a happy life. And so yeah. you really like this couple. You're all about them. But it's really born out of something where, like, you know, anything on the outside, we're like, that's terrible. So it is this complicated thing, and that happens in our world very often. And so it's how we look at the situations. Nothing is one way or the other. We're not, you know, we we love we 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 you know are rooting for her. We're rooting for her, and we're rooting for Luke, and we're rooting for them to get back together with their child Hannah. Um, and their con- com- relationship is complicated and messy. And um, so there's definitely a and realism about the that. the way that they got together is the reason why they're pulling them, why the, why the government is pulling them apart. They basically invalidated all second marriages mm. um, because you're gotcha. only supposed to have one. And right. so that, that's a real easy way to get a, to get a population of, of relatively young, fertile people mm-hmm. is just invalidate everybody's second marriage and just snatch everybody up. Well, so... I okay, so I understand that in religion, like, typically the rule is one marriage and done. Yeah. But in the Bible, so many people have, I'm sorry, like 500 wives. Let's look at Solomon real quick. Yeah. And ah, even the they, story that they pull from, mm-hmm. that's a second wife that we're referring to. She's not a second wife in that 
there's a difference between, in, in at least biblically, between polygamy and serial monogamy. Mm -hmm. So in one case, you invalidated the first marriage and got a second spouse. In okay. the other one, you still have the first spouse and you have another spouse or however many additional spouses. Okay, so you are have. you allowed to invalidate the first or are you supposed to have multiple? What's the accepted form? There isn't, well, there is no accepted form except that you are supposed, if you are married, you are supposed to stay married to the person right. that you got married to. Yeah, I, I think, get that. Right. So, so Luke, that's the deal there. Yeah. So I think um, June has this interesting question, being that their relationship was an affair. She was like, why do I feel like I'm cheating on Luke? So it's just this big ball. Like, mm -hmm. I, it's even hard for me right now to, like, articulate all those. And I think that's the greatness of this show and this writing and their acting is like, you, you it's so it's a lot. Point. It's a, yeah, it's mm -hmm. it's a lot of complicated emotion you don't necessarily can articulate. Um, and so then we have this sort of ceremony between Nick and June with like Mrs. Waterford like standing there in the corner, so awkward. Um, and uh, so we leave that for a moment. And we get back to Emily, and Emily has a new post, and her commander's wife is obviously older, so you know probably past childbearing age, so which is why they're given a handmaid. And um, the commander's wife was like, uh, I have the flu. <laughs> Let's just cancel the ceremony. And Emily's like, you can't cancel it every month. So, so, so she's really feeling like we are getting these like compassionate characters right. once in a while. And I feel like the, the commander of that house, the commander and commander's wife um, of that household is truly having this compassionate a safe environment for someone who, especially Emily, what she went through, which I right. think is like a really nice, it's like pocket that she's in because she really could have gone back to to some really brutal family and she hasn't. So I think that's sort of like a saving grace of what's going on there, which is it's just interesting. And I think it is that you know the complicated nature of the show of, you know, not everyone is one way or the other. So we're really seeing Serena Joy versus this very compassionate wife. Right. You know, this... And, you know, part of me wonders, you know, in the writing process, in that writing room, how many times did they go back and forth on what family they were going to give her next? Yeah, yeah, for real. Because it really could have gone Any number way. of ways. Um, because they canceled the ceremony the first time, because Commander couldn't get it up, <laughs> they had to redo that and uh fred becomes emboldened and he looks at her in the eyes which he's not supposed to do he like touches her leg which he's definitely not supposed to do and like june is pissed so she he wash, marches into the office and is like you can't do that because like i can be go to the colony and they could kill me you know and like this is all consequences for me and that's where you were saying earlier you know he said you know it's for me you know about connection it's, yeah you know and the, here is this chunk of why i'm going to make the argument for argument's sake that i 100 percent hate fred waterford <laughs> for all eternity <laughs> i'm glad i'm the only one here that has like a 10 percent okay <laughs> so here because we really get to his core values and he really lays them out <laughs> he really lays them out so he says i mean i'm before, not denying he's a dick 
Yeah, before, you know, June argues, you know, we had choices then, and now he argues that you, but women have respect and they have safety, and that it's their biological destiny to have children, to, to focus on that. And that love isn't real, and it's just lust with a good marketing campaign. So he's very <laughs> cynical about that. Well, he's an ad man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, Offred learns what they did to Emily, and she yeah. is like livid right. about that. Which is fair. Um, and he quotes, every love story is a tragedy if you just wait long enough. I'm like, wow, you're super cynical, dude. Um, another it quote really here. Sad. I think what gets to the crux of Gilead if you can sum up Gilead in this one phrase, it'd probably be his line, we only wanted to make the world better. Better doesn't always mean better for everyone. It always means worse for some. Mm -hmm. And I think like that is just like, that, you, no, matter true, what, no matter what true. the future is, it, what our present is, it, it's never it, gonna it change. It absolutely is true. That is yeah. the most true statement the, you could say no matter what timeline we're in. The okay. thing that, well, we'll get to this in the, in the next episode more, the thing that makes me hate him <laughs> and to a certain extent, poor Serena kind of walked into this, was that he betrayed his own wife. Mm -hmm. And he betrayed his he own threw, law. He mm -hmm. threw... <laughs> no, no, no. That's not what I mean. I don't mean sexually. Okay. She had a life. She had power. She yeah. had a job. She was right up next to him as an equal, developing. She was this, crazy. Developing this 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 Empire. whole theory that was going to underlie this new civilization. She and wrote I the thought book she with and him. she didn't think it was going to apply to her. Mm -hmm. I think is really what happened. And he threw her behind under the bus. Yeah. Um, Based on the regulations that she co-wrote with him. No. That's not what happened. <laughs> we'll talk about that more. Oh, no, I agree. I agree with, I agree with everything uh, because I think because I just rewatched it and she was sort of like really right up until when it was just became all the men. She was really they used right. a lot of her that's what, policies. Right. That's what I'm, that she wrote. exactly. But what I'm saying is that they he went in there saying that he was going to vote for a specific way that things were going to go, and then he didn't. If you watch it, I remember this very clearly, that they had talked about what he was going to go in there and vote on. He just on, straight up betrays her. And he just oh. straight up, he straight hmm. up betrayed her. That wasn't the way I read the scene, but that's totally I, valid I don't disagree sure. with your interpretation. Yeah. I mean, it is a straight up yeah. betrayal. Yeah. And you can see it on her face. Right. And so it's like, I'm like, wow. Okay, it's one thing to betray the, you know, to be trying to schmooze the handmaid because, you know, you need to keep her under your control and all that. But you're trying to do that mess with your own wife that you threw under the bus. I'm sorry, dude. When we get to episode six, I think it's like definitely more nuanced than that a little bit. But yeah, well, I, I think agree, but I think when you yeah, I, I do agree that it is he just kind of needs to die in a fire. So. <laughs> <laughs> and with that note, because yes. <laughs> I agree with you. Mm -hmm. um, so after this whole exchange, Alfred is obviously really upset and happens to run into Nick and confronts Nick. And Nick and his nature is extremely compassionate, but Alfred is like really pushing him. And I was like, are you mm -hmm. an I? Because if he is an I, what that signifies, I believe what I read into it is okay. that 
she can't have this whatever chemistry relationship is happening with them. She can't go into that because he becomes the enemy. Right. Mm -hmm. And so she wants to know if you are a friend or you are an enemy. And when he confesses to her that he is an I, and I was like, then you are the enemy. And that's really tough for her because she was really looking for someone outside, not outside because obviously he's part of the household, but someone to connect with like meaningfully. Mm -hmm. And he can't be that person now, which I think is what, because I had to watch that scene a few times. I'm like, why is she so fucking upset that he's an I? Like, who cares? You know, like, he's obviously broken so many, so many freaking rules. Right. But I think that's what I eventually realized was it was that. She but couldn't like, develop beyond what they were actually doing. Right. right. And mm-hmm. then so it goes back to Luke and June about their affair and sort of how they really are in love with each other. And so how that relationship sort of, you know, goes on is that Luke leaves his wife and, you know, they're in love. And so they eventually get married and have Hannah. Um and so it, the contrast of that is definitely this, like, really true love moment that Luke and June have. You know, despite the circumstances that it's born from, they really had this true love. They really, truly loved each other. And then there's the situation with Nick and Alfred where there's something there, but it's super complicated, obviously. And then there's the thing with Fred and, and Alfred, which is totally one-sided, and Alfred is really just, like, looking to survive, like, looking for ways to to use the situation in her favor, but knowing full well, like, what Fred is after is Fred is this 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 really toxic relationship, so to speak. Um, and we close out this episode with an awesome scene from, uh, well, second to last uh, scene is uh, Emily of Steven, Alexis mm-hmm. Bledel's character, just bails out hard. Just, mm-hmm. they're in the flower market, and for some reason, she just has this impulse, and she sees a car door open, and she takes the opportunity. She gets in the car. She doesn't even know where she's going. I was like, girlfriend, you could have just, like, driven off to, like, Canada. But she has no idea. There's she doesn't know how to get there either. That's so true. She, there there's are something. no maps. There are no signs. <laughs> there's nothing that she can read. Okay, okay. This is way to 95. They took away all these signs. They didn't have ways. What are you talking about? No. Um, <laughs> So she bails out hard and she like runs over a guardian and it's just it's such an incredible scene because you're just like, yeah, that's what happens when you kind push someone too far. Kind of Thelma and Louise. Yeah, this is what happens when you push someone too far. That was far. a psychological break. Yeah. I love the whole thing with the lilies. I want to touch on it a little bit. I do talk about it in the in the full podcast of this episode um, about the lilies because they talk about the lilies at the flower market and then Serena Joy's painting them. And so I decided to Google what is the significance of the lilies because I knew there had to be a significance why it was, they're talking. And lilies signify... Wait, wait, wait. Do you know what it is? Because you mm. smiled pretty hard when no, you said you that. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, man. Purity, love, fertility, femininity, and unity. Mm-hmm. I think unity is interesting. I think definitely the core of it is that purity, love, fertility, femininity. And definitely because mm-hmm. this episode we're talking about love and whether cheating or not and, and lust and all of those uh, feminine things. Well, if you take all of that, I would say that what's interesting is... Um, the psychology of color is actually pretty in-depth, and when you take the color red, mm-hmm. red signifies a number of things, but at its deep core, it's love. Mm-hmm. Love and passion. Mm-hmm. And what is a stronger passion than hate? Mm. So it's interesting that they 
put all of their handmaids in red. So either you love them or you hate them. And either mm-hmm. way, you have to indulge them. Ah, I love that. I love that. Um, one of our future um, little snippets, I definitely want to address costumes. And we'll have a nice uh, uh, yes. discussion about costumes. Um, and then our very, very last scene, Alfred <laughs> uh, and Nick ha- really start their affair in earnest. And I think mm-hmm. she just really throws everything out the window and she realizes what is the most important is really she puts her own desire and need and uh, femininity and sexuality at the forefront, yes. which I think is actually super relevant to what a, like a lot of women can like relate to that today. Yes. You know, not in any extreme situation, but it's, it's a really, it takes a lot of work. It it's takes self-care. To self-care. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of bravery. It takes a lot of self-awareness um, to put your desire and your sexuality and your needs first. Well, and it's the only thing that she has any control, control over, over. It's You know, it's her one, her one area where she can be defiant. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and, she, and you're right that she just kind of throws everything behind that because if he decides that he's going to go with the eye end of things and again throw her under the bus then at least they had good sexy you know <laughs> and i got to yes. see max Mengele's butt because it's real cute <laughs> it is a nice butt <laughs> hi max i'm obsessed with you <laughs> he's cute i will give him that He's um, not hot, but he is cute. He's a just, there has that sultriness. You know, um, I really love that actress, like, Natalie Dormer. And, like, there's mm-hmm. always just this sultriness about her. No matter, <laughs> she'd just be, like, sitting there, not doing anything. And she's just a sultry woman. That's what I think of Max Minghella. He can just be sitting there, and he's a sultry man. That's just my perspective. Um, uh, so that was really uh, great episodes, really themed on relationships. And um, episode six, I think, is like really one of my favorite episodes, if not my favorite episode of the whole series, because it really gets, it's about Serena Joy, and the yeah. show is about Alfred. But everything in this episode is really about how we contemplate uh, how we personally, as each woman individually, thinks of our place in society in our households in our careers in the universe in how the government views us how it really addresses all those questions and like we can talk for hours and hours um if you really want to dig into this episode please go and look on your itunes for um episode six where we talked about this for probably over an hour (laughs) we can't spend that now because we're just recapping it but a lot of really important things happen in this episode which we're going to run down really quickly because it's a lot. A lot of things happen. And we have like 10, 15 minutes. Um, blast through it. Yeah, we're going to blast through it. Um, mm-hmm. So the handmaids are scrubbing the wall because the diplomats are visiting. Mm-hmm. And uh, Offred is sort of getting bolder with her attitude and her quips. You know, just like, you know, she's... I can dig it. Bantering with... Uh, she's getting laid regular. <laughs> <laughs> so she's a little, little less tightly wound. There you go. I like it. I like like you. I like it. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. It really is. It really is. Um, And then so uh, Fred arranged this visit of the ambassadors, and they're going to ask Alfred some questions. Mm -hmm. And here we get a glimpse into Serena and Fred's early relationship, which to me is real weird. 
Because they're, they're super passionate, super, like, loving and super into each other. But they, like, prayed before they had sex, which is... Bizarre. It's, that's a thing, apparently. I didn't mm-hmm. know. Uh, yeah, I didn't know either until I was like, oh, God. Um, so then we have the Nick and June flirting. But you know? they're, they're equals. I they mean, are. Back then, yeah. yeah. Back then, they ran, you yeah. know, in the same... Up until that one scene where he throws her under the bus, they're equals. Yeah. Um, and then Alfred is questioned by the ambassador. Um, from Mexico, mm-hmm. and uh, she told them yeah. that she chose to be a handmaid, and uh, that uh, Fred is saying, oh, they're having children for a whole nation, and the ambassador asks you, are you happy? Mm. And it's like the longest 30 seconds in television <laughs> history <laughs> where she's really trying to figure out what to say, because mm-hmm. she knows what the answer is, but she knows what she should say, so she's trying to, in her, sorry, in her... Um, brain and heart m- say something <laughs> that will not completely crush one side or the other of what she's battling with like somewhere <laughs> in the middle so she said she's found happiness which is bullshit lie but we'll go with it um, so they're in the parlor and, and, and this is where we really get into the nitty gritty of Gilead having um, these relationships with other nations and how that's playing out so here we're having a trade delegation ambassador from mexico they're trying to get trade started and we get a lot of just details just like details about what's going on in the economy and all that good stuff and so they're saying gilead has a totally organic agricultural model um but let's be real that's all slave labor so you know um new there's new weather patterns that we have to contend with Mm so um, there's different crops that are doing well and not doing well in different parts of the world um, and they mentioned a citrus grove in Florida that they own. So maybe Gilead is extended all the way into Florida, or mm-hmm. they have some sort of property or there. At least they bought property there. Um, and then oh, the ambassador turns to Serena and was like, "Never mistake a woman's weakness for meekness for weakness. Never mistake a woman's meekness for weakness." And it was a quote from a book that Serena wrote called A Woman's Place, and the concept is called domestic feminism. Ooh, girl, we can have a whole conversation about that. But um, she sort of deflects and was like, yeah, I'm so super proud of this society where we've reduced carbon emissions by 78%. Like, she's really yeah, she's got pushing policy. Down. She's really pushing the policy and, like, tr- like, tr- like uh, what their accomplishments are. Right, And the ambassador is really just really knowing how to dig about, like, she had all the right questions. Yeah, she was like, well, what about a society in which women can no longer read your book? The book that you wrote, mm-hmm. you've created a society where women can no longer read it. Talk about poke the bear, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's super interesting. And we sort of bounce back to the contentious relationship that uh, Fred has with Serena. And, you know, oh, that was a disaster. Why was she asking you those questions? You know, if we don't make progress on trade, our currency will fall off a cliff. So we are getting like, okay, this dystopian society, often we, uh, it's usually absolute, right? We're dealing with one society mm-hmm. and not competing societies. So now we're seeing the one society competing with other societies in that, oh, we still have to have an economy. So we still are having a currency. And so they're really still working out basic governance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. Um, so that's super interesting to me because I really like um, politics and economics and all that good stuff. You wonder if anybody's boycotting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, we do find or out in episode like. seven mm-hmm. where we get to Luke, where Toronto or like Canada in general is sort mm-hmm. of like a refugee safe haven. So right, and and even in the states currently, what what we're dealing with with uh, certain trade restrictions and tariffs and things like that, you know, just on a normal day to day, that's you know the economic economics of a global economy is very complicated. So whether or not what's happening in the cultural aspices, you know, we deal with a lot of cultures where we don't necessarily agree with almost all of their policies, but we still have <laughs> to agree. deal with them right. on a diplomatic mm-hmm. and economic level. They have something that we need or right. we've you know, got I, something that they need. Or, mm-hmm. yeah. And I do think that this was interesting to hear that, you know, Mexico, they were having issues with um, fertility um, all the same. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, you know, how strong is this issue around the entire world? Is yeah. it the entire world? Is it regions? Is it pockets? Like, we don't really know the truth of it all. In the first graph, in the first graph, like there's multiple graphs, and there's one graph I remember in the Red Center where they're saying that fertility rates really super declined at a certain point, and right. I think there was a statistic in... Um, when June gets pregnant, pre-Gilead, saying how like one in five births are successful. Like if you can get pregnant, I think one in five babies actually will survive. Something like that. So pre-Gilead, it was pretty bad. And I think if the situation wasn't so severe, I don't think they can be as forceful or as um, have so much support for their handmade system within their own society. Well, but, okay, so having those statistics, they might be relevant from the CDC, and the CDC is normally only within the boundaries of the United States. Mm-hmm. So the difference would be if those d- statistics came from the WHO, the World Health Organization. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that would, would tell be, me a different story. That would be really frightening if, like, globally it was one in five. That right. would be That would be pretty dire. So that's what I'm I getting at. Like like it would be like a public health. I figure there's probably... Those are the sorts of statistics that countries don't necessarily share with each other. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I. But if it's an actual issue to the point that you can't oh, I don't procreate, disagree, but I mean, it would I, be I mean, at early, some point. I mean, early on, like told. for example, it was difficult to figure out how many people in the world had HIV, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Early on, because countries in the same way that the individuals did, sort of felt stigmatized with regard to how many people they had. People had wouldn't count themselves, and then and governments so wouldn't count them. they yeah. weren't sharing that information across borders. I wonder if this yeah. is sort of a, a shameful sort of thing. We can't keep our... Or, or if it makes you, they feel like it makes them look weak. Our population mm-hmm. is dropping off a cliff. People can come in and, yeah. you know, invade us mm-hmm. or do whatever. Um, or that economically, you know, the dollar is going to go. <laughs> I think statistics is also, uh, you know, because it is science based, but there is sometimes. There's room for error. Yeah. And I don't want to say controversy, but like there was articles recently in, in floating around on um, Facebook groups. Like uh, I know there's a handmaid's group that I follow of uh, like an argument that fertility rates are declining and sort of like what is the validity and who is putting on this study so i think the rigorousness of the science we're looking at a little closer now of like where are these statistics coming from because there are organizations that will pay a lot of money to sort of put information out there and look like well yeah look at big tobacco like back in the day they had they hired researchers scientists to do plenty of studies on rats that really told them nothing to semi 
show that there was no correlation between right. tobacco use and cancer, but really they didn't even use their own tobacco. Like, they did messed up studies to, quote unquote, prove mm-hmm. their own points yeah. that they were paid to prove in the first place. Absolutely. So, I mean, like, it depends on where it's coming from. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in this flashback um, in the show of uh, pre-Gilead, um, so Fred, it looks like they're living together. Fred and Serena have a house together. Um, he's saying he's coming from committee meetings. Um, people in his committee are being followed by the FBI. So that's interesting. I'd really like in the season maybe to get on the other end of that. Oh, to, I think, yes. they're, still, I think they're, they're married already. Yeah, they're married point. on that. Yeah. Um, so Serena commands Fred to go out. Like this sort <laughs> of, you know, this this relationship they have is not so one-sided. She even sort of has the upper hand in terms of interpersonal relationships. Like, no, we're going out, you know? So even in this relationship, um, they're very balanced and very equal, if if not Serena also having a slight upper hand in that, um, maintaining that relationship. Um, And Serena's talking about writing this article, and we get to this concept that becomes sort of the crux of the the handmade... um, economy, if, if it, as it were, is what we were talking about mm-hmm. this episode. Fertility is a national resource. Reproduction is a moral imperative. I think those two hand in hand. Whoever's writing this show, I love you. Because, <laughs> because it is that. Fertility is a national resource. Reproduction is a moral imperative. And this is what the episode becomes about. Because then we, f- we, f- we uh, find out later at the end of the episode that this is what we're trading. We're not trading oranges. We're not trading chocolates. We're trading for Fertility. Handmaids. We're mm-hmm. trading for people who can reproduce. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fred is like outwardly supportive of her work and ideas. And then he gets this weird text saying they issued the orders and there's going to be three separate attacks. So this is where we get very specific because I don't think in the book they discuss any of this about how the Not, government went well, down. Well, because, because Offred would have no right, way of no knowing. Way. So three separate attacks. First, <clears throat> they're going to attack Congress, then the White House, then the court. Um, and you they, know what this sounds like? Yeah. The show Designated Survivor. Yeah, I was about to say, I, I did watch a few yeah. episodes of that where they did sort of take out. The first, like, two or three episodes, I totally lay out those three attacks, basically. Yeah. And sort of this moral imperative that they share, this world viewpoint of how, like, things need to change, we're saving them, we're doing God's work. And they share that, and they believe that, and that's mm-hmm. what makes them work as a couple, is that, like, heart, body, and mind, that's what they really believe. You know, they're not bullshitting on any of that. Like, right. they're motivated 100% by those things. Um, and then so June is back in Waterford's office, and he's upset because he didn't think the meeting we- went well. Who are they to judge us? Gives us some information about Mexico. Half their population is malnourished, so there's obviously some sort of food shortage issues. They've had three elections in four years, so there's definitely political turmoil happening in Mexico. And going back to what Kay said makes you wonder what other political turmoil mm-hmm. and things are happening in other countries. I would love if, you know, the writers of this world would come out and say, hey, so here's the background. Let us give you some, like, extended information about the world. Like, I would love some stats and, like, whatever, like, outcomes they've, like, They want pre-figured. us to find that out slowly. Yeah. I know. If they, they want to turn this along. into a 10-season ordeal, <laughs> then, yes, they're going to withhold. But if it turns into only three seasons, and I would cry. Yeah. And I would want that to happen. Like, release this, please. I'm just yeah. curious. 
Uh, that is super interesting because we do, um, I think in one of our future little um, podcasts before um, the premiere, uh, talk about some of the trailers because some of the trailers look at like the colonies. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. don't know how you can talk about colonies if you're going to tell us about what else is out there. Right. What's out there? That's a different <laughs> show. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so Offered the Actress slash Manipulator uh, sort of gives him a little bit of intimacy because he's sort of being like a belligerent drunk and I, mm-hmm. he, she's feeling like she doesn't want to fall out of his good graces. So she kind of gives him a little bit of intimacy there. Then we get to the big banquet scene, and they're in this fancy I hotel question mark. It kind of looked hall, like it. Fancy hall. There's mm-hmm. like chandeliers and um, architecture still, you know, preserved and things like that that they haven't destroyed. And um, so they're lined up. All the handmaids are there at this Speaking banquet. Of heartbreaking. Oh my god. And Serena Joy was like, "Oh, let, can you dem- remove the damaged ones?" And yes. Aunt Lydia, this is where, like... I saw some compassion out of her. Yes. Aunt Lydia becomes, like, I starts to become one of my, like, favorite people. Hate her ideologies, but her is but a person. But that very moment. Yeah. She's a true believer. Yes. Is what it, is what it comes down to. She's Absolutely. not mean. No. No. She's, She's following the policies mm-hmm. that were laid before her, and she genuinely believes it's for a great cause. And she genuinely cares, cares mm-hmm. about her girls. And she defends them. And she you see like, this multiple times after this point. Yeah, absolutely. She defends them to some interest. Like, we all deserve to be honored. They, they did it for the cause, so they should be seen. And Serena's just like, you don't put the bruised apples at the top of the bunch, and you're just like, you're a, a bitch. bitch. Um, and sometimes... And she's having this talk with Janine because obviously Janine's upset and Janine needs kid gloves because of her state of mind. And Aunt Lydia is super great about that. Yeah. Because it's, it would be super easy to just be like, you know, yeah. beat her up. But she really te- she really uh, treats her with kid gloves and says, sometimes we have to do what is best for everyone, not what is fair. And then you're just like, oh, yes, you're Even right. if that includes yeah. popping your eye out of your head. Right. Right, but that... That girl was that needed the kid gloves. Like she, she was like, okay, but I wanted the food, and she was like, I will, I will give you cookies, and yeah. like, like she genuinely yeah. handled her emotional state for what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, I do appreciate that a lot about Aunt Lydia, and she, she does. They did give her a lot of those moments going forward. You're right. Um, and then so we do get to this grand hall and the chandeliers and people are having a banquet and it's so extravagant. And I just want to like shout out to the one handmaid who always has like the funny, like comedic, like, like little comedic breaks. Like I think the last episode was about like, I'm allergic to lilies. Yes. And then this episode, she's like, I think I went to a bat mitzvah here. <laughs> 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 Why do they keep giving, keep giving her, like, once an episode, you just need to give her. These are really funny (laughs) lines, because she's great. They know we need some comedic relief, and that's the moment. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Love it. So the scene comes up, we go back in time to slightly, like, I guess the attacks have happened, and they're forming government, and this is the scene we've been talking about all throughout the episode, is the throwing under the bus, is that uh, they won't let Serena speak. And uh, she's, like, sort of being understanding, but obviously she's upset because Mm -hmm. she thought exactly what Kay said, that she'd be involved and that certain rules wouldn't apply to her, that she'd have a position of power when other people wouldn't, when a majority of women, maybe not all women except her, would have, like, I think you're right. Like, now that I think about it, like, I think she thought she would be the exception. The the top ruler. not just her, that there would be 
you know, an echelon of, of women up here. It, it would be Top like level women, ladies. It would be like women who have nannies and au pairs. Yeah. You know what I mean? You've got the nannies and au pairs down here, and then they're the people who are, they're, they're living their lives, mm-hmm. and they're doing their stuff, and mm-hmm. so on, and the or nannies even and like the au pairs the are royals. taking care of things. Like in old yeah. school royal days, mm-hmm. like you've got the king and the queen, mm-hmm. even if the king's the ruler, you still got a queen. Right, you still and got a queen. Even right. if she might not have all say, like she's right there in his ear. And then you have all of her, uh, whatever they're called, like her court or whatever so her like ladies that get to be on basically just slightly below but basically Mm -hmm. her level Mm -hmm. like she expected that kind of an outcome right i think i think now that i think you guys bring that up that's totally totally valid and i totally agree with you and we get this quote from i think um commander i forget his name but he comes up um it's the other household the one with uh the one that had the baby janine's family Mm -hmm. yeah um he becomes a Janine's commander. Um, <laughs> he says, "We, it's our fault. We gave them more than they can handle. They got caught up in academic pursuits and ambition, and we let them forget their true purpose. If there was any question, y'all, about what the show was about, <laughs> I hope you know by episode six <laughs> what the show is about <laughs> is that one quote. And so I think it's super clear. Like, this is the base we're operating from. These men in power really, truly do not believe in the autonomy or, you know, of, of women at all. Zero. Zip. Zilch. If you had any question, there, th- I hope that solves your question. Um, so the banquet, uh, we get back to that. <laughs> Serena Joy. Uh, even the righteous need a little show business. Oh, girl. I, She's married to a I marketing executive. Um, and in Serena's speech, she, like, quote, unquote, honors the handmaids, like, for show. And then they show off the children. Oh, my God. And it becomes this like joyous moment contrasted with the handmaids just and like the ambassadors crying yeah. with all of these children. So that was the center, right? Like, um that's what pushed them over the edge to close this deal, right? For mm-hmm. trading red tags, as one of the other handmaids says it. Um go back to Serena and Fred, they're moving into their new house. I guess this is like post attacks and they're setting up the government and she's throwing away all her old clothes and she's just putting in her new suits and her new wardrobe, making her house a home. She's throwing out her high heels and all the books, including her own book she puts in the trash. And um, there's sort of this like uh, beginning of the breakdown of like the balance of the relationship because before they were equal, they were very equally matched. And this is sort of the breakdown of what happens of him going to work and her staying at home all the time. And I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form, if that is a relationship dynamic, that that is not a valid relationship dynamic and it doesn't work. I'm just saying in this specific instance for this couple in this storyline, mm-hmm. that's where it sort of begins. And then after that whole um, show that she put on, that she really orchestrated, it sort of rekindled this spark and mutual respect and brought back this intimacy and desire, which is what kept them together in the first place. Um, So that's an interesting arc for them. And I really loved this arc for her. Um, And then Alfred sort of freaks out. She's at Nick's uh, little apartment saying that, you know, she said these untrue things and now she feels partly responsible that because of her words to the ambassador that they're going to be traded like cattle. And which leads her to tell the truth to the ambassador the next morning. She actually says the whole truth. They beat her, they beat them, they torture them, they rape them. You know, they don't choose this. 
and she asks the ambassador to do something. Mm -hmm. She asks her to her face, like, you have to do something, we're human beings. And she, the ambassador tells her, <laughs> no children have been born in my town in six years. Selfish mofo. Right. Which you think is a really appalling statistic, but, like, does that really justify no. you trading human beings? Hell no. Hell no. You never right. know what you would do under under duress, under duress like that. But I think she came to her. One of the things that had her come to her was that this was another woman. They sent a woman. It's a woman. It was a beautiful with moment. Power. Yeah. And I'm going to come to this woman with power yeah. and say to her, woman of color, uh, with power, and say to her. Well, but this color is in her country isn't a thing. I know, okay. but I'm just saying, you know, in general. In general, okay. this is. You must understand this. You and you know what it's like to be oppressed and blah 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 blah. And you have the power to change things. I'm coming to you as a woman. Fix Begging this. you. And she says, "Yeah, no, no, no." And it goes back to that like, what is best for everybody is not fair. Mm -hmm. And it goes back I to I don't even care. That's some BS. Of course, it's like it's it, this is like such a brutal situation that. I, I think, you know... Like, uh, as you guys, a woman, would you true. really be okay with this? Hell no. Really? I think, though, in her position is interesting as the ambassador of this trade delegation from Mexico. So you have to think about what's down the line. Because if this is a successful thing, then, then they're going to try to do this right. to as many countries as possible because this becomes their number one resource, right? And uh, also interesting, this was all Serena's idea. This was all Serena's idea. Um... So then at the very end of this, we sort of get the real cliffhanger of cliffhangers uh, is the ambassador's assistant is a, is a spy. There is a spy. And he tells <laughs> her that Luke is alive. Luke is alive. I still want to understand <laughs> how this random ambassador in this tiny little town in the middle of Mexico got a memo from Luke in Canada. Huh, what? How does he even know? How does no, he know how, all this? How does any of this happen? I'm right. just They're so beyond baffled. Spies. Spies. Oh, internet. Yeah. Well, you think? think? <laughs> yes. There's still internet. It's just I thought it all went down. It's just That's not true. in Gilead. Yeah. Oh, shit, man. Yeah, she <laughs> just... <laughs> she's, the, she's the ambassador. She can't be, like, off yeah. the grid. No, no, because, you know what? That man. is a valid point, because I think in so many dystopian I miss universes... I know. In so many dystopian universes, I think we've begun to make a lot of assumptions. And I think when we re yeah, watch this show, they really try to break down a lot of those... Uh, I don't want to say stereotypes. What are they called? Archetypes or cliches yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. of uh, what a dystopian universe looks like yeah. so i think that um i'm still processing i'm sorry man. <laughs> <laughs> i mean um, it's cool but i mean well i don't want to this is kind of a spoiler but we'll get to this yeah. real soon when luke gets to canada there's all kinds of stuff oh still yeah there but they, they ran out of coffee have. yeah because yeah. <laughs> well, they can't get to it because right, so side i just Gilead. thought they ran out of technology <laughs> <laughs> It's like there are things going on in Saudi Arabia. They do, you know, or, or China, North Korea in China or North Korea, where they don't have they don't have access to data. They don't have access to the internet. They don't. They can't Google and all this other stuff. There's state-run Google. I saw know? this uh, picture once. I don't know if it's true. A hundred percent. I didn't check the sources, mm -hmm. but it was a picture of these it, it, of a photographer, a journalist in North Korea took a picture of these. Uh, 
students at a computer, desktop computer, like 90s desktop computer, there were the huge mm -hmm. monitors. And, uh, the, but like the electric, like the computers weren't on and like there's like not even, they're not even plugged into the wall. Right. Yes. So it's like just for show. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the to only teach three them, in the it's country. It's to teach them how to use the computer, how to, you know, like oh, how to, you know, do yeah. that kind of stuff, but they don't actually want them have to have to access. have access to the information. Why right. would you Same. teach them anything? Because they still need programmers and stuff. It's not like they don't use in computers In North Korea? They, yes, in North Korea. No, I'm asking, why would they bother on teaching them how to operate a computer if it's not plugged in? What value like do you tapping. get from this? Yeah, I think mm -hmm. it really was the for show. But I think you are right. Like right. in schools and stuff, they probably... I don't know about this. <laughs> I'd have to do more research. I'm highly know. skeptical about that being well, true. <laughs> Point being, um, there are places that, as you said, are informational black holes. Mm -hmm. Correct. And that does not mean that the rest of the world is like that. It yeah. means that that place you were right. is an mm -hmm. informational black yeah. hole. I made an assumption because of this Orwellian future we're yeah, undertaking. Like, yeah. So I think the show really does a good job of like really breaking down um, uh, our assumptions of yeah. what we think. And um, even though it failed me, <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, we've I've I've and made tons of well assumptions. Yeah. yeah, I've made a lot of assumptions on the show, and, and and again and again they really show uh, the different flip side um, of 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 a lot of characters, of a lot of classes of people having two different sides, and that it's not it's not black and white, and it's not so simple i think that's i think the crux of this entire show is that it's just not so simple for us to say and especially i think on oh, my soapbox in this uh, digital age to say whatever we want on our facebooks or in our social media and to uh, proselytize about our own opinions you know what it really comes down to is that any issue we talk about um, with any severity length of passion that it's really just like not so simple and uh, so we're going to leave you with that. Um, so it's been complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> it's a moral of the story. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed that recap for episodes four, five, and six. We'll be back with another recap for seven, eight, nine, and ten. Thank you so much for listening. Um, my name is Donna. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Kay and to Abigail. And uh, we will see you all next time. Thanks for listening to The Handmaid's Podcast. My name is Donna Ibali, and I'm your producer and host. My co-hosts are Abigail Johnson and Kay Megan Washington. We record at the Look On Media Studios in Baltimore, Maryland. Send us your questions and what you think about this week's episode. Connect with us on Facebook at The Handmaid's Podcast. Uh -huh.